This is Adam Quadic from the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. The episode you're about to hear was originally a video interview. We are doing a series of webinars with the Real Estate Forums in their Thought Leadership Series. We've had a number of high-profile guests on so far with many more to come. If you prefer to see the live video, you can watch it at realestateforums.com. Whether you watch it or listen to it, the content is great. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. This episode today is sponsored by Wise Meter Solutions. Forward-thinking owners and managers are embracing submetering, and more of those companies are choosing Wise Meter Solutions as their partner. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise has become synonymous with creating the efficient buildings of tomorrow your residents want today. Good afternoon. I'm George Prisbalowski, and welcome to the ongoing series since April of Canadian Real Estate Forum webinars. We're pleased today to present another insightful conversation with a highly respected industry executive. Anthony Lanny joined Quadrial Property Group in February 2017. As Executive Vice President Residential, he is responsible for the overall leadership and strategic direction of the firm's Canadian residential and seniors housing portfolios. This includes responsibility for the sector's integrated investment management, technical services, and property management functional areas. With demonstrated leadership in acquisitions, development, and construction, Anthony brings a deep understanding of markets and the design to the Quadrial leadership team. He was formerly a vice president with Bental Kennedy, where he led multifamily asset management activities across Canada. Earlier in his career, Anthony was also a partner with a Canadian development company, as well as working for a global financial institution in corporate finance in both New York and Toronto. Today's discussion will examine how Anthony and his team are responding to the impacts of COVID-19, along with what he sees as other challenges and opportunities in the multi-residential and seniors housing markets in Canada. He will be interviewed by Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik of First National Financial, Canada's largest non-bank lender. Over the past three years, they have also built Canada's largest and most popular commercial real estate podcast, having conducted over 115 interviews. A few comments on some logistical elements of the technology we're using today. Depending upon the depth of the discussion, there could be an opportunity for Anthony to also respond to a few questions from you, the viewers. You can type a question in at any time during the webinar. Simply click the Q&A button on the left-hand side of your screen and then hit the Submit button. To improve your viewing and listening experience, you can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on the lower right corner. Today's session is being recorded and will be available for on-demand viewing. You'll be notified by email tomorrow with a link to the archive. Please pass the information along to other colleagues who are not able to watch today's presentation. Our thanks to Wise Meter Solutions for sponsoring this conversation with Anthony. Wise is your ideal partner for smart submetering and utility expense management solutions. And with that, Anthony, Aaron, and Adam, the floor is now yours. 
George, thanks so much for inviting us to participate today. And of course, thank you to uh, Anthony as well for agreeing to this. Aaron and I enjoy every time we do one of these interviews, but we must admit that apartments is an absolute comfort zone for us. For anybody not familiar, First National is the largest apartment lender in the country. So this is an asset class that we can do a leisurely backstroke in all day long. And we know Anthony can as well. So we hope people find real value in that. And just to reiterate what George said about the Q&A, don't wait till the end to start firing in questions. You know, please do it now. We'll be going through them and we'll be getting to that portion around the 15 minutes mark to go. We'll start going through those. So please make them interesting and we will get to them. Before we jump into the 30,000 foot view that Anthony has of apartments, I want to invite Anthony to you know, give us a little bit on his background and how he got to where he is today. Sure, thank you. And hello to everybody. And thanks for having me here. It's a great opportunity to talk about a sector I love in an industry that we're all really passionate about. I started my journey in real estate really as a baby. My family was involved in land development in the greater Toronto area as my grandparents emigrated from Italy in the 50s. And like many other immigrants at that time, started building houses. And that was sort of the core of my understanding of real estate. On Saturday mornings, I used to go and look at land <laughs> with my dad. That was how I spent my social time as a little kid. So with that, it's not really a surprise that I ended up in real estate. I completed an MBA in real estate and finance at the Shuler School of Business in uh, Toronto. And subsequent to that, I joined the Bank of Nova Scotia, started off in the real estate group, and then ended up transitioning into uh, media and telecommunications and ultimately the technology corporate finance team. And then I came back to the real estate world, joined our family business, active in land development and multifamily and housing in multiple Canadian markets, lived through the GFC and really learned and continued to hone my skills. And then in 2014, joined Bentel Kennedy to lead their asset management activities in the multi-residential space for a growing and amazing portfolio that Bentel Kennedy has. And then I was fortunate enough in February of 2017 to be part of a group at Bentel Kennedy who migrated over to Quadreal and effectively helped create Quadreal's business today. And that's where I sit today uh, here in lovely, rainy Vancouver, British Columbia. Anthony and I had a chance to talk before we recorded and, and we talked about, as Adam alluded to, our, our love for apartment building. And we, we promised the viewers we're not going to go down a rabbit hole where we start talking about you know, the per square foot cost of insurance is appreciating at 12%, whatever it is. We'll try to keep this macro. And I think that probably fits Anthony's perspective. Anthony, just keep going about your current role now and what your view is. I know you've got perspective, of course, on Canada, but it's larger than that. So Quadreal, we're a global business. So we're based in Vancouver. We have very sizable operations in Canada, but a growing base of investments in global cities around the world. I think our current number is over 25 global cities in 17 countries. Residential forms about a third of our overall holdings globally, with a lot of that in Canada, but a lot of it also in the Americas, specifically in the United States, and a growing presence of multifamily investment and development in continental Europe. In addition to that, we investments in student housing, seniors housing, and the land lease communities and this sort of across the spectrum of major global cities and countries, we see a lot of opportunity to continue to invest in multifamily. Me personally, while in Canada, I'm responsible for our almost 12,000 suite portfolio, plus our ultimately uh, a large development pipeline of opportunity that I work with together hand in glove with our development teams. 
to manage that Canadian portfolio, we've got almost 250 employees engaged in different levels of, uh, of management, all the way from the front lines. We're vertically integrated. We operate our own properties. We've got amazing people involved in investment management, capital management. So we kind of touch every part of the housing stack here in Canada, as well as actively developing both multifamily rental and condominium product. But I also get the chance to see what we're doing globally. So I'm working, again, hand in glove with our colleagues on the global team based in New York or based in London, for instance, as they look to put new joint ventures together with a number of, of key multifamily developers, for instance, in the United Kingdom. In continental Europe, we did a big joint venture of about a billion and a quarter euros last year with Heinz to develop multifamily across continental Europe, which is super exciting. So I was involved in that process and obviously helping our global team sort of find out what do we really want to invest in and and how does it look? And then our Americas team based in New York and really operating across the United States has done a pretty phenomenal job of... uh, amassing investments in existing multifamily and development pipelines of almost 50,000 doors. And we've done that in really only a few short years. So multifamily becomes probably one of our largest asset classes in terms of overall holdings and one of our strongest conviction asset classes, even through this pandemic. So I'm very fortunate that I get a chance to see a lot of that deal volume, but also get to see the trends that are happening globally. And then also as an operator in Canada, be able to help educate my peers on what we're seeing as an operator and how we can make better investment decisions in other markets. Well, Anthony, that's why I want to ask you specifically. I know that the name Quadrial, part of the reason it was called that is because Quad being four, you look for assets in the four corners of the world, which is a very broad view that a lot of people we speak to wouldn't have. A lot of groups are, of course, just you know, single country focus. But given your very high level view of so much of uh, the available multifamily available worldwide, It's a three-part question, but it's it's all themed. What geography were you most excited about pre-pandemic, now during the pandemic, and two years out from the pandemic? So that's an easy answer because I'm passionate about what Canada has going for it. And I was passionate before, and I continue to be passionate. And what I'm seeing right now through the pandemic is driving that excitement and that passion. The Canadian marketplace really depends on strong immigration flows. You know, our portfolio is home to a number of of recent immigrants to Canada and and landed immigrants, international students. So it's been challenging with that immigration flow really turned off. But with recent announcements that the federal government have made, and and I think our overall conviction around strength, the Canadian economy relative to others globally, and, and also just our positioning as a great place to live, we're going to continue to see a lot of people want to live in our great cities. Quadrail were invested you know, in multiple cities, almost coast to coast. We had a large portfolio in Halifax we sold at the beginning of this year, which would have made us a coast to coast operator. But you know, I think we're seeing lots of strength and lots of stickiness in our operating platform from people who love where they live. They love the communities that they're in, and they're continually searching for ways to improve their own lifestyles. And they're looking to the multi-residential market to be able to do that. So I don't really see that changing. I think through the pandemic, we've seen the reason why multi-residential has formed such a large core of not only Quadreal's assets and investment volumes, but also many of our peers, not only within Canada, but around the world. It's an asset class that is highly resistant to influences of a pandemic. It's not to say we've skated through without really feeling that impact. But we've been really fortunate. We have amazing teams on the front lines who are continuing to deliver solid occupancy, 
solid leasing velocity, and ultimately our stakeholders benefit from that. So I, I really see that continuing as we get through the pandemic and once a vaccine is uh, largely distributed and we can get back to quote unquote normal, I think uh, the multi-residential market will pick up where it left off in 2019. No, Anthony, we're going to go to the Q&A. Just reminded everybody, we'll go to the Q&A probably near the end of our discussion. But the first one that came up was just talking about you know, specifically what the impact has been of COVID on vacancy rents. I think you just answered it. Let me summarize that ultimately it maybe has softened your market a little bit, but ultimately had very little impact. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think occupancy for many of our residents in many of our markets has been fairly solid and pretty consistent, as has rent collection. We've seen some impacts, of course, you know, there have been uh, some near-term job losses and that's impacted our resident base, of course, like everybody else's. So we've worked hand-in-hand with our residents to provide opportunities for them to pay rent on a different basis or structured basis. I think many of the operators in Canada should be owed a debt of gratitude by by the multi-residential resident base for our approach, right? You know, many of us, ourselves included, worked with people as opposed to saying we're going to take a hard stance as part of that, though, we had to cut leasing off through the summer. As we were getting into the heavy parts of COVID in the spring, we made the decision to reduce our leasing velocity. And that built up some vacancy through normal turnover that we would expect. So we've got some elevated levels of vacancy in certain properties, but we're working on it. And we've seen silver lining, seen a lot of interest. So in the fall, we had some of our best leasing months that we've had in a long time. There's continued interest in our properties, continued interest in our markets. When I think about some of the great, the great stories we have to tell about resident service, those are keeping our residents. Our folks are not leaving. They are loving what we're doing to protect them and their communities. And, and I think we're seeing that in terms of strong rent collection and strong occupancy pretty generally. Um, well, we'll make this the last COVID-related question, and, and then let's move on to other things. I think everybody, we talk about it a lot, of course, in the media permanently. How does the Canadian experience compare to other geographies? other apartment assets around the world? So we, again, we were pretty lucky in that having some exposure in the UK, we were able to see what was coming for us. Obviously, we have an office in Hong Kong as well. So our colleagues in Hong Kong were giving us a window early on as to what would happen around lockdowns and sort of restriction and curtailment of activity. And we've seen that in Canada as well. And really, most markets are fairly consistent. We've seen amenities being closed down or limited. We've seen operators, ourselves included, roll out virtual sort of contact opportunities with our residents, enhancing their abilities to pay rent remotely, call for service remotely, sort of breaking the old way of popping down to the management office and talking to the person there and and then getting the service that you need. Much of our resident base is starting to skew into that under 30 demographic. Those folks have tended to really appreciate and been early adopters for rolling out of applications that, that enhance their sort of virtual contact with us. And we've seen that pretty consistently around the world. The best operators are delivering those kinds of changes today. And that's enhancing the quality of life for residents who maybe don't want to interact with people right now. Maybe they don't want to leave their suite, but they still want to get the service that they need. And so we've taken some good cues from what we've seen in those other markets, and we've helped import them into Canada. But I think when we look at other markets, and specifically in the United States, which is a, a pretty nice parallel to us with a very broad and defined multi-residential market, there have been pockets of weakness in the U.S. And you think about markets like New York City with high elevated levels of vacancy and loads of incentives and 
that's a big change and a big change given the high degree of office environment workers in that marketplace who perhaps have decamped and have gone somewhere else and have led core vacancies to be elevated. So, so we've seen that reflected in some of our markets as well. And we're taking what we can strategically for what some of our operator partners have done in the United States and, and importing those ideas into Canada to help us manage not only vacancy, but the opportunity. So everybody, I think, in every asset class had a bit of sense of foreboding or doom and gloom in uh, you know mid-March. And by June, the apartment sector had really proved itself out. Rent collections had been strong on the first of uh, the consecutive months. And then your transactions resumed again, being the, the other big one. And we've seen in transactions that there's still a very high level of interest. You know, there's low interest rates right now. A lot of groups that weren't looking at multifamily before are now. So are you finding the environment competitive when you're trying to grow? And how do you plan to, to grow through that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think when we consider the stickiness of our cash flows in multi-residential, it's making residential more interested or more of an interesting sort of asset opportunity for broad institutional investors who maybe didn't have a lot of residential exposure before. So our house view is there's going to continue to be lots of competition for good quality product, regardless of the marketplace. We've seen that certainly pre-COVID, and we expect that to come back post-COVID. Of course, investment volumes are a little more muted right now, just given there's uncertainty in the marketplace. But lenders have stepped up with capital. We've seen deals transact and, and trade. Pricing is not off. Pricing is probably accelerating. You know, We expect cap rates to, at a minimum, be flat, but probably continue to compress given funding costs are lower. And really... 98% plus rent collections really prove the theory that we can get through all different kinds of cycles with a multi-residential portfolio. So what does that do for us at Quadreal? We're looking at a number of opportunities all the time to buy existing buildings. We engaged on a transaction in April to close over 700 suites in Southwestern Ontario. So we bought three, three buildings and added those to our portfolio after we sold our Halifax portfolio in February. As well, in the summer, we purchased a uh, development site in downtown Toronto out of receivership. And that was actually under construction and represents an amazing opportunity south of Bloor to develop a 400 plus multi-residential suites, which you know, for a lot of people, they think that's the area that's getting really hurt right now. But long-term, and you know, as an institutional investor, we're encouraged to invest long-term and invest on themes. And that's what we're doing. Our development pipeline as well is quite broad and geographically diverse. You know, in Canada, much of our multi-residential development pipeline is focused around intensifications on our existing sites. Like many other large commercial landowners, we have opportunity in our portfolio to add multi-res, you know, all over the place. And I think about the work we're doing in Toronto at Bayview Village or Cloverdale to intensify those amazing retail sites with new generation retail and just a ton of great quality residential is really going to help us lead the market, we think, in, in terms of our uh, overall appeal and our overall portfolio. We're doing that as well in British Columbia and Vancouver with Oak Ridge Center and Tri-City and Coquitlam, as well as a number of high quality infill developments. We're active in the condominium space. We have a development, Revel Park in uh, the Vaughan Metropolitan Center where we've just sold out our latest condo offering. So there's a lot of activity happening and, and it's tough for us to be able to point today to say, you know, this is what we're going to buy in the next six months. The markets are pretty fluid, but we're an active, active investor and we're looking and we see lots of good, healthy competition for these quality assets. 
I know the development pipeline is of interest to a lot of people. Development is by, by its nature quite lumpy and the impact of a pandemic can really slow down development timing. We've elected to really put our pedal to the floor and really push our development timing on sites that we think have a lot of long-term appeal uh, for our stakeholders. So sites like, for instance, Bayview Village in Toronto, we're moving rapidly to a point where hopefully very soon we'll be able to launch our active development and construction on that site to renew that site and, and bring in a ton of new multi-residential as well as uh, some amazing high-quality retail. So I'm very excited about the ways we can grow our, our portfolio organically, but also supplement that with tactical acquisitions as they appear. Well, you are correct that people are interested in your development pipeline because the Q&A has got a whole pile of questions. So I'm just going to ask one follow-up related to one of the questions here. You know, a lot of those geographies you just referenced were around intensification. So which geographies are you excited about where you would just do a purchase or development, not intensify an existing site? You mentioned Toronto, you're obviously looking, but where else in the country would you be looking to deploy new capital into new sites? Sure. You know, in Canada, we're focused on our two major markets for development and multi-residential being Vancouver and Toronto. We recently, well, not recently, I guess just over a year ago, launched a new building in Calgary called Soto in the Beltline, which, which did exceptionally well. I think we'll look for opportunities as they come in different markets, but the bar is quite high for some of those markets. We have a high degree of conviction around both population growth and economic sort of growth and activity in both the Vancouver and, and Toronto markets. Interestingly, it's not just about downtown in those markets. When we think about some of our highest convictions in the GTA, for instance, they're in the suburban realm. And as the suburban realm grows and economic activity tends to bolster growth in those suburban markets, we think there's a very unique opportunity to develop more multi-res in those markets, certainly along transit infrastructure as it exists, where transit infrastructure is coming. But even the inner suburbs, you think about places like Etobicoke that haven't seen a lot of new multi-residential development, we think those areas are primed for more development, just given continued infrastructure, the Eglinton West LRT what Metrolinx is doing with higher frequency go transit that will help move people around the region. And I think will give people an opportunity to live where they really want to and hopefully in multi-residential developments as well. So we'd be looking all over the greater Golden Horseshoe as well as the greater Vancouver area for those kinds of opportunities. Anthony, sorry, Adam, I'll cut you off there. There's a whole bunch of Q&A. So why don't we jump there and then we'll jump back just to keep moving. One of the questions, this is related to kind of general general theme here. And I always find this interesting too, and I'm wondering what your perspective is. When you're looking at sites, or maybe you acquired a site, or maybe you are intensifying a site, what discussion goes on and what is the decision-making process between multi-res, you know, long-term hold, and condo? Or do you always just do multi-res and condo is never part of the discussion? It's a great question. And I think in, in our own portfolio, there are a number of sites where we may have envisioned the original intent to be condo and ultimately rental rates have risen and our competitive ability to deliver returns on multi-res is now closer to what we can do for condo. Everything has to stand on its own. We're not going to develop multi-residential rental to lose money. We're also not going to do that for condo, but we're invested for the long term. Our stakeholders include stakeholders within RBC Global Asset Management, as well as Quadrille's owned by BCI, one of Canada's largest pension funds. Our stakeholders are largely pensioners in British Columbia who demand and need a long-term sustainable cash flow. Hard to do that with the lumpiness of a condo development pipeline, not impossible, but tougher. 
We love the idea of sustainable long-term cash flows that multi-res delivers. And that's our bias. But we look at things really on their own merits. And when I think about a site like uh, what we're doing at Revel Park in the Vaughan Metropolitan Center, that's a site that lends itself to a lot of condo development. But we're also considering how do we do multi-res there. It's a nascent urban node. There's not a lot of purpose-built rental housing anywhere in Vaughan. If you want to build it, will they come is the real question. So we have a high degree of conviction for those markets. And I think you'll see, like many other operators, longer term duration cash flows are really what we're looking for. And we'll probably turn away from the short term wins that condo will deliver more frequently as we go. Because the multi-res universe really does look like it meets the needs of our stakeholders and also delivers the sort of living opportunities that will you know, create high levels of occupancy and ultimately strong levels of cash flow. That makes sense. Let me put a hook in for our listeners. I have a tangent to go down and then we'll come back. But there's a big senior housing portfolio within Anthony's purview. We'll talk about some student housing, but we'll talk about alternative assets within sort of the multifamily res asset class. And we'll talk about affordability too. Before we go to those topics, I'm going to go sideways here. And we probably should have done this earlier. I think maybe just for those that are not familiar, take a step back before we get back into those topics I just mentioned. Can you explain where Quadros come from? You just went through a relatively big shift, right? As far as ownership, you know, I think amalgamation with BCI. You keep mentioning stakeholders. Maybe just define what that means and how that impacts your decision making, and just give maybe just give a bit more definition around what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. And apologize that sometimes I just take it for granted uh, because I've been So Quadreal is owned by BCI. BCI is one of Canada's largest pension funds based in Victoria with over $170 billion in assets. BCI has been an investor in real estate for a very long time and has traditionally had its assets managed in real estate by third parties. Third parties including Bentall Kennedy, Great West Life Realty Advisors, and RealStar. Those are amazing operators and they do a phenomenal job. And in, I guess in 2016, BCI decided that it wanted to take its asset management of its properties in-house and create a quadreal as a platform to be able to do that. So part of that, I came over from Bentall Kennedy with 300 colleagues who seeded quadreal ultimately on February 1st of 2017 as well. We're active in hiring people from other organizations and today we're up to 1200 employees around the world. So with BCI as a sponsor and really bringing over a world-class portfolio, we're up to about $45 billion in assets under management right now. Our challenge was, how do we grow that? And the portfolio was largely weighted to Canada. And we wanted to grow our international exposure, and which we've done. So our international teams have put on you know, a number of great deals and opportunities across the different asset classes around the world. And Quadreal actively manages either asset management or property manages, depending on the geography and the location. And recently, we structured a transaction with RBC Global Asset Management to buy in to a number of these great assets and partner with us was an over $7 billion Canadian transaction, one of the largest Canadian real estate transactions in history, actually. So RBC GAM is now one of our key stakeholders. And we operate our properties and deliver cash flows uh, for the stakeholders of both RBC Global Asset Management as well as BCI. When we think about BCI's stakeholders, ultimately, those are the public pensioners in the province of British Columbia. So, you know, we have a high degree of responsibility and we hold ourselves to account to those stakeholders and aim to, you know, our tagline is excellence lives here. 
Uh, we say that because we try to bring excellence in everything that we do, knowing that our stakeholders are really depending on us and the work that we do every day. So it's a real unique position to be able to, to meet the needs of retirees who've built this province, as well as be able to look at investments around the world to help sustain those folks and sustain our new partners at RBC Global Asset Management. I want to thank Aaron for recovering our fumble as interviewers to not fully set the stage for everybody listening before jumping into it. But I don't know if it was fully a mistake to think that uh, most people probably would be familiar with Quadreal, but you know, good catch, Aaron. Aaron, you also mentioned, of course, we're going to jump into some subsectors of residential. The one that I want to go to first is seniors housing. Anthony, of course, your position is that COVID is not going to have a long-lasting, meaningful impact on residential. Does that include the subsector of seniors housing or what additional challenges do you see there? It's a good question, Adam. Seniors housing is, you know, we were seeing a number of trends that were inhibiting occupancy before COVID. And when you think about how healthcare is delivered in Canada, many provincial and local health authorities were looking at ways to deliver healthcare in people's homes and keeping people in their homes longer. In our world, our seniors housing portfolio is not geared to long-term care. It's more independent living. And what we found is the average age of our residents is increasing steadily. We don't think that trend is really going to change. And in fact, as healthcare is able to be delivered in homes more rapidly and efficiently, we think people will stay out of, uh, will stay out of seniors properties, not forever, but certainly for longer. And we're seeing that within our own portfolio. COVID itself has created certainly a number of challenges related to leasing within our seniors portfolio. And it's not without, not without a lot of hard work that we're climbing that mountain. I think a few of our sites have actually done really well with some leasing and a few of our sites are really struggling. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think when people are considering what their options are as they're getting into their 80s and older, there's more choice available today. There's, you know, the suite of independent living options. There's, opportunities available to you, private pay for memory care or more assisted living. Those needs are not really going away with an aging population. So there's certainly a fit in many portfolios for an appropriate level of seniors care within a portfolio. And and I think ours is no different. So it's not a key core piece of our portfolio, but it certainly certainly does help with our ability to provide housing across both income and age spectrum in Canada. Well, it's probably worth mentioning as well for anybody who doesn't get into the ins and outs of seniors is most of the bad headlines revolving around the elderly and COVID. That, those were long-term care facilities, which you just said you don't have a lot of. So not to be overly morbid, but do you think that that would drive people, put more value into the type of housing you provide and that there was much less of a mortality rate in the type of seniors housing that you work with? Yeah, and I would agree with that. And, and you're absolutely right. Many of the unfortunate headlines are being linked to long-term care facilities in Canada. Some of those operated by government, some of those operated by private operators. And it's just the nature of the beast that this pandemic adversely affects those who are elderly. In those kinds of situations, obviously, pandemic control in uh, seniors' housing properties is always top of mind. Our operator, a company called Verve, works with us hand-in-hand to deliver property management services in our seniors portfolio. I know they were very, very focused on pandemic control within our properties. And thankfully, knock on wood, the impact at our properties from COVID has been quite modest. So uh, it's really, it's hit or miss. It depends on if you have an outbreak. And ultimately, uh, there's only so much you can do when there is an outbreak. But yeah, I think we're pretty well positioned just given the... uh, 
given that where our properties are and, and what the occupancy levels are to continue to see uh, opportunity in that space. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next asset class, but fortunately, Adam and I had an update today from our senior housing team at First National. And just to put some numbers on it, I think occupancies pre-COVID were sort of 90% plus, and now they're sort of down 5 7 8% you know, nationwide on average. So it's not drastic amount, right? That's really a small movement if you think about it in perspective. But let's keep going. We've got uh, about 20, 25 minutes left. I want to give some time for the Q&A because we've got you know, a bunch of questions lining up. Student housing. Let's just talk about what your view is on student housing. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's the flavor of the month. Other times people say, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Where does it fall within your portfolio and your appetite? So within the Canadian context, we really don't have, well, we don't have any investments in student housing in Canada. Conversely, we recently announced a major investment in a student housing operator, a global student housing operator with a base of operations in the United States. We invested, um, looking at my note here, $2 billion in uh, CA Ventures, which is an entity that has over 35,000 beds in the United States, Europe, and Latin America. So we are a co-owner of that venture now. We believe student housing will be a strong asset class to invest in as part of the overall multi-residential strategy. In fact, in the United States, we've seen occupancy levels in that student housing platform continue to be strong. So paradoxically, you may think people aren't moving into dorm rooms, etc. In the United States, that's not really the case. We've seen strengthened occupancy there, and we feel very bullish about, about that market. You may want to know why do we not have the similar focus in Canada, and I think the U.S. college environment is a lot more, it's much more developed around sort of private enterprise than the Canadian marketplace is. So we have many of the campuses in the United States might be in smaller towns or smaller centers, and there are out parcels that are available for development, and there's a, a well-worn sort of path to providing student housing in proximity to these great university towns and universities. Less of that exists in Canada. Much of the development student housing in Canada is, is taken on by the universities directly. And in limited instances, there are great opportunities to develop associated student housing, either for a university or, or on a private basis. But we really haven't seen the ability to scale like we can in the United States. So for an investor like ourselves, scale is a big thing. Uh, we have to be able to deploy capital meaningfully to be able to deliver meaningful returns our way. It's hard for us to do it in sort of dribs and drabs, which is why we focus on the United States as our main sort of thrust around student housing investment. So, I mean, just quickly, so continued growth in that sector in the U.S., what about internationally or is it predominantly USA focused? It's mostly USA focused, but there's a, I think we have a number of student housing investments in Asia Pacific markets, specifically in Australia, New Zealand. What we're looking for generally is, you know, outside of the United States, we're looking for areas where there are lots of international students. And Australia is probably one of the world's leading centers for international student migration. And there's an embedded sort of need to provide, you know, high quality student housing for folks who might be more transient. And that's where our investments in those markets have led to. I'm not really certain about what the outlook looks like for Europe, to be honest. Much of our approach has been focused on Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. at this point. One more question. I want to get to manufactured homes. I think that's an underappreciated subsector of the multifamily market. And we'll finish there before we get to the Q&A. But before we do that, you talked about your investment in student housing in the U.S. And it, it sounded like you weren't necessarily purchasing assets, but investing with partners or, or providing equity to those partners. And maybe just talk about, and not necessarily student housing in the U.S., but just in general, 
about how you get that scale. I mean, being the size that you are, like you said, you yeah. can't go and buy 30 units here, there, and everywhere. you got to kind of really find a way to meaningfully deploy that capital. How do you go about that? Like, you're looking at property managers, you're looking at owners of assets, like large owners, and trying to, mm-hmm. to find partnerships. What's the strategy? It's a great question. So I think in Canada, where we're vertically integrated, we can deliver those opportunities. And we've got a great uh, sort of in-house portfolio that provides us with the scale. But when we look at markets like, let's say, in the United States, you know, how do we get to close to 50,000 doors without having a lot of people down there? Well, it depends on great partner relationships. So we've invested with entities like Lennar, you know, the largest home builder in the United States to help. We were one of the first investors in LMC, which is one of their which is their multifamily housing developer. So we have a number of high-quality, luxury, Class A, high-rise developments with Lennar in, in multiple markets in the United States. We've invested with Fairfield, Gables, Clarion, as well as uh, recently uh, launched a joint venture relationship with Mill Creek, who's one of the largest developers of multifamily housing in the United States. So we, we rely on high-quality JV relationships to fund or to, to seed these developments and ultimately deliver the scale that we're looking for. In many instances, the programmatic JVs, so we'll find ways to support the development of great sites as opposed to buying 10,000 units in one fell swoop. Those are less apparent to us. And in, in the United States, there's a great opportunity to continue to develop. So we've seen, you know, the bulk of our portfolio is certainly development assets newly developed assets. So we get really best in class, we get scale and we get low capital expenditures, which really helps us with at least with our, our medium term planning about what our cash flows look like. So on balance, I think there even in Canada, we while we can do the development on our own, we also do engage in joint ventures. So at Oak Ridge Center in Vancouver, we have a joint venture partner in West Bank, who's uh, you know incredibly well renowned and well regarded developer of condominium product. West Bank is working with us to help develop 3,000 plus residential units and some portion of that being multifamily residential as well as condominium. So we, we partner with best in class to deliver best in class is really the way, it looks, or way I would say. Thanks for that. Let's do manufactured homes. I mean, let's sure. maybe I'll let you define it. And then our pre-recording conversations, you, you kind of you let us know that there's an investment in Parkridge. So maybe just Define manufactured home for those that may not be familiar, and then maybe just talk about you know Parkridge's strategy. Sure. So Parkridge is a, a Canadian operator of land lease communities, and those include you know the typical sort of mobile homes as well as stick built regular single family housing on land lease pieces of land. Parkridge is one of Canada's largest operators, and they are a, a subsidiary of BCI, just like Quadreal is, and now part of the overall Quadreal universe. So I get to work hand in hand with our colleagues at Parkbridge who are based in Collingwood, just north of Toronto, as they look at, you know, how they're expanding their own platform. They're delivering housing really in the outer suburbs of, let's say, the GTA or in Vancouver or in Calgary or Edmonton, as well as on some exurban spots. If you think about it in Southern Ontario, they're involved in Owen Sound, they're involved in the Sega Beach, they're involved uh, all over the place. They have resort communities across the country, including in Quebec and all over all over the place. And what they do really, really quite well is they're delivering, you know, a different form of affordable housing. Uh, not everybody desires to live in an, a dense urban environment and not everybody desires to pay a ton of money for a house. What Parkridge does is they offer a highly curated, highly programmed environment for residents 
that they can live in a home that they own, that they can get mortgage financing on. And at the same time, they don't have to bear the cost of that home completely in that they can pay for a lease for the land portion. So again, for our stakeholders, that lease payment drives a very sustainable level of cash flow. And we're, again, we're able to play in different levels of affordability around the country, which is always of interest as we look to maintain high level of occupancy. So we're quite fortunate at Quadrail in that we have all these different sort of approaches to residential. It's not just luxury high rise. It's not just wood frame, suburban construction. It's not just housing. It's, it's kind of everything. And with that, we get to see the trends across the country and really around the world lead us into what we're doing over the next 3, 5, 10, 20 years. Okay, one more question, and then we're going to get to the Q&A. But there's a lot flowing in, and I want to leave some time for that. But I, I set you up because I, I, you needed to do research. So i got to ask you about the green bond, Anthony. So maybe just describe, of course, Adam and I love to talk about financing. Your story is not one that makes us very happy. But nevertheless, why don't we just talk about the way that you guys approach financing? Well, I'll also premise or preface my statements by saying, you know, First National has done some amazing work with us and our predecessor organizations. I mean, we've always appreciated the great relationship we have with, with people up and down the company at First National. We have a great treasury team led by a guy named John Lee here in, or he's actually in Toronto. And one of the initiatives that we took very seriously is sort of our overall ESG framework and responsibilities around environmental and social governance is how can we address the climate challenges that we have? And we've set some pretty aggressive targets for ourselves. How can we match that with investor interest? And what John and and the Treasury team was able to do, uh, together with Jamie Gray Donald, who leads our our sustainability group here at Quadreal, they recently put together a $350 million green bond, which was oversubscribed, which was rated double A low, and for 10-year money, came in at uh, 1.74%, which is the lowest rate for a 10-year Canadian corporate in history. And that's, not a, that's not a spread over Canada. That's the all-in that's, coupon. On that's all-in. Yeah, all-in. So we have 57 Canadian investors participating in that green bond offering. And the idea is that the proceeds from that green bond are there to help support Quadreal in meeting its emissions and carbon reduction targets and overall approach to reducing waste. We've committed to reducing the carbon footprint of our Canadian operations by 80% by 2050. So that's 30 years away. It seems like a long time. It isn't. And we're going to use the proceeds here to help invest in whether it's renewable energy or whether it's enhanced operating approaches to reducing water consumption or energy consumption. The idea is there's many, many Canadian investors who have an interest in supporting that kind of approach in Canada. Given we're oversubscribed and we've got 57 amazing investors in, it's an investment rated credit. And to be really under 1.75% for 10-year money is really remarkable. But what it allows us to do is it gives us very reasonable financing to be able to go and do the important things that we've committed to do. And it showcases, and that's not just for multi-residential, it's for all the asset classes, but what it does is it showcases the harmonizing and the interest that institutional investors have around issues of environmental and social governance. And that's really important to us at Quadreal. So for us to be able to do this and do this in such a market-leading way, I think has, uh, has paved the way for other companies to be able to do the same thing. You described the financing is very reasonable, and, and I would agree we're going to jump into some of the, the questions now, and I'm going to lead off with a feisty one. 
because you mentioned Toronto and Vancouver as being you know, target markets, and they both reside in provinces that have rent freeze in place for the next year, and which does have a real meaningful impact on uh, returns and CapEx budgets and all that. But the question is, with housing affordability top of mind in the news cycles, what are your thoughts on the resurgence of populist calls for rent controls and government regulatory oversight of multifamily developers and operators? A great question and probably no surprise to you guys. Something we talk about all the time. And I'll put my cards on the table very quickly. I'm a believer that supply solves all ills. If we constrain supply and we constrain the development of rental housing, we're going to be faced with continued situations where we have increased growth and increased sort of competition, which is great for holders of existing multifamily real estate. But what it does is it creates uneconomic conditions and unaffordable conditions in our in our great vibrant city centers. So I'm a believer that, you know, while rent controls have not necessarily inhibited the great cash flows that we've seen through this pandemic, they probably have helped, to be honest. Many of our residents and many of our properties are below market in terms of the rent that we're achieving. We look across the border and I look at what's happening in Seattle, the higher amount of vacancy, lower amount of rent growth, and just the overall development of more rental products seems to create more of a balanced market than what we have here in Vancouver, let's say. They don't really have rent control in Seattle. There's a lot more product that's being delivered. And I, I do worry about strengthened rent controls inhibiting the development of multi-residential rental. If you take a developer like ourselves who can do condo, if you're looking at the situation of, you know, I might have rent controls for a new building or worse, vacancy control where the rent is tied to the suite, I may not decide to develop that product. I may just say, you know what? I don't need the brain damage. I'll develop it as a condo. And what we're really seeing today from our resident base and certainly in the wider market is people are recognizing that renting an individual condo is not the same thing as renting in a purpose-built, professionally managed rental building. If you're living in a brand new rental building, it's indistinguishable virtually from a condo building. But the big differences are in service and obviously in, in how we look at wellness. So we have a plan for if we have a COVID case at one of our buildings, we have a plan on how we clean and what we do to notify our residents and so on and so forth. Individual condo owners don't do that. Condo buildings don't have nearly as uh, ubiquitous an approach like that, that we do. And I think folks are going to start to really ascribe real value to the multi-residential rental professionally managed environment versus the individual condo market which we, for lack of a better term, folks have conflated the two. They've said that they're the same thing and they're not. We want to see municipalities really push and support the development of more rental housing. And I think more needs to be done in terms of incentives to push more rental housing. So, you know, if it's whether it's cost incentives or whether it's approval incentives, a fast track to develop rental housing versus straight condominium housing, they should be looking at all of those levers because our communities are crying for more rental housing. Not everyone can afford $1,200 a foot to buy a condominium unit. Most folks want to live somewhere that's safe and secure. And uh, we feel we have the best chance to be able to do that in the rental housing industry. And to do that, we need more scale and we need more development. Yes, that is my cat. Clark Kent has jumped up beside me if anybody's wondering what the heck that is. This is this leads in. This is another question, Anthony, and this, this leads in from what you were just talking about. What kind of design changes or amenities do you see will be important for rental development in the next decade? I think that's along the lines of safety, wellness. What else are you seeing as being kind of important as you're designing out the next generation of purpose-built rental? 
if you think about one of the lasting impacts, what I believe what the lasting impacts will be of this pandemic, it'll be reinforcing the ability for people to work from home. And while that may not be permanent in terms of five days a week, you'll have more of an ability or a rental or rent residents will have more of an ability to work from home more frequently. They're going to need amenities that help make that easier. So whether it's co-working lounges, which were already in vogue before the pandemic, we're really starting to look at, you know, how do we create the conditions where people can say, I can live here and I can work here and I can be efficient. So I've, I've got both the opportunities for me to decamp from my suite to go work somewhere different, but within the property. I've got an opportunity to work within my suite and I can be efficient and have enough room to be able to do it, maybe more elbow room, as well as thinking about the building systems that exist. So converge networks, fiber to the home, all of those things can't leave the rental business in the dust. We have to sort of import those. So what we're trying to do within our development pipeline is is think about connectivity as a major, major driver of occupancy. If we can deliver high degrees of connectivity and reliable and fast internet, as well as other building systems that are all put together on the same sort of networks, we think we're going to drive even more occupancy. Connectivity score is going to be just as important as walk score or transit score in the future. So that's what we're looking at. So we would tend to shy away from development opportunities where we couldn't bring a high degree of connectivity, whether it was walkable distances to your community, whether it was activities that you could get to via transit or whether it was within your own actual suite through enhanced internet and, and those kinds of things. So I don't know that we're, we're going to see a lot of a change. Properties are always going to have gyms. They're going to have social lounges. But how folks book those and how they congregate in those spaces are probably going to be different forever. We're going to give people or we already have the ability for people to book spaces for themselves. We're even looking at opportunities to allow people to have personal or private workouts within a workout facility. So be able to get them their own little bit of private space so they can hire a trainer, they can get on a Peloton bike and not worry about being proximate to others who maybe could carry some some form of, a, of an illness. So we're looking at all of those things. We're also looking at, finally, we're also looking at ways to improve touch points. So looking at cleaning, looking at access to our buildings, looking at virtual tours and those kinds of things so that people can do more on their own schedule as opposed to having to work on our schedule. Those are all part of the amenity offering of what we're, what we're looking at for tomorrow. I think we're uh, just about out of time here. We've got time for one more question, though. For 2021, what do you care about more, occupancy or rent growth? And maybe you can comment how the increased use of concessions kind of plays into that for the upcoming year. I'm, I'm, you know, like many in our marketplace, I need to see strong levels of occupancy to continue to sell the story that uh, multi-res has growth opportunity. It's hard to get there when you're, you're looking at high levels of occupancy and, and, or low levels of occupancy. And those low levels of occupancy also come with incentives or concessions. So I want to see the, the occupancy remain high and leasing activity remain pretty constant burn off those concessions where they are to be able to find a path back to rent growth. This pandemic will end. We will get through it. And when we do, we're going to be faced with many of the same supply challenges that we had before. So I really don't think rent growth is going to be a question. I think it's a matter of when, not if. The real question for me is, you know, how do we sustain high levels of occupancy? And ultimately, how do we marry those high levels of occupancy with high levels of resident satisfaction? Right now, those are both very key 
we want stickiness in terms of uh, reasonable turnover amounts. You know, typically we always want more turnover so we can access market rents. In today's environment, we might be looking for a bias that is maybe a little bit less on the turnover scale and supporting high levels, levels of occupancy. So even though I talk out of both sides of my mouth, I think occupancy is the driver that lets us get to rent growth. We have a minute and a half, let's say, Anthony. So this came up multiple times in the Q&A, so I'll cut you off if you go beyond 90 seconds. Conversions of existing hotels or offices, Yeah, I'm not sure that's a feasible investment, but we're hearing about it more and more. Is that something you've looked at, and what are your thoughts on it? We haven't looked at it often because of scale. We can't find the kind of opportunities that would make a lot of sense for us. And typically as a developer, I've done a conversion in my past. It's really difficult. <laughs> uh, the costs never come out where you think they will. And you know, I think if we could buy something that was a conversion, we'd be more interested than actively developing it ourselves. Just, yeah, 10 more seconds. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Perfect. Well, thanks very much, Anthony. I think we'll cover off there a minute to go, but I think that's enough. I don't want to put you on the spot to come up with another short blast question. Uh, of course, thanks to Informa. You know, thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Adam. We really appreciate the conversation. Great talk. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed to Anthony and Aaron and Adam, the three of you. We sincerely appreciated having you with us and providing a most insightful conversation on some of the impacts of COVID-19 on a multi-residential sector, and along with your thoughts on how you're preparing for what lies ahead. A special thanks to Wise Meter Solutions for sponsoring this discussion, your ideal partner for your smart submetering and utility expense management solutions. As a reminder to all of you, there will be a follow-up email tomorrow that will include a link to view a recording of today's presentation. If you found this event useful, please share it with your colleagues. Once you leave the webcast, the short survey will pop up in your browser window. We would greatly appreciate your feedback on this event. Next week on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoons, we will continue this webinar series. Check our website at realestateforums.com for more details on the speakers and the starting times. A brief reminder to you that also that registration for the 29th Real Estate Forum is still available for $395 for a dynamic program featuring 90 speakers and 41 presidents, among them Stephen Polaz as well as Thomas Friedman and others. Check it out on our main website, please, and take advantage of this while it's still there. And while you're there, check out the Real Estate Forums Club with the more than 20 benefits that you can receive as a member. This includes saving 20% on registrations for all our conferences. So on behalf of the Canadian Real Estate Forums team, remain healthy and safe. Thank you again to all of you for joining us today. And we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Wise Meter Solutions, is Canada's leading provider of submetering and utility expense management services. Let us help you achieve your goals, be they a greener operation or financial performance, reflecting a $45,000 increase per suite in property value. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise is your go-to partner. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.